0: From 10 cents a dance to a place in the spotlight, the fabulous story of Ruth Etting, A determined girl reaching for fame and fortune, singing her way into the hearts of a nation. From the mob rule days of Chicago's lurid past to the glitter of the Zig Bell Folly. But behind the glamor and adulation, Ruth Etting lived another life in a shadowy world dominated by a fierce little man who was crazy with love for her. Marty the Gimp Snyder, a mysterious and dangerous man that no one really knew.
1: It's ticklish business anyway, you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. Hello everyone and welcome to Ticklish Business. I'm Kristen, joined as always by Samantha. Samantha, how are you?
2: I'm great. So ready to talk about
0: Doris
1: Day in May. Yes. And we have at the top of the episode, a special announcement. We now have a third amigo to add to the Ticklish Trio. Yes, we have a Ticklish Trio once again. We have the
0: fantabulous Emily Edwards joining us. Emily, how are you? I am so good. I am so excited to be here. Can I be the Martin Short of the three amigos? That would be an ideal situation. I think (laughs) we all want to be Martin Shorts.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Emily, you probably heard her on our six weeks with the Thin Man series that we did last year. She also does the fantastic Fuck Boys of Literature podcast, which I've been on and you should listen to. And now she is a part of Ticklish Business. I'm so excited. She is here to, yes, talk about Doris Day in May as we talk about 1955's Love Me or Leave Me. But before we talk about that, we'd like to briefly remind everyone that you haven't checked out our Patreon at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz, then you should. We do additional bonus pods, including doubled features, looking at remakes, and based on a true podcast, looking at biopics and true crime. We just wrapped up our classic film, March Madness. We also have two hours of TCM Classic Film Festival audio intros and the entire Russ Tamblin conversation. That is all available over at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. We also give out regular care packages of movies and gifts and let you guest on an episode. And don't forget my book, but have you read the book 52 Literary Gems that Inspired Our Favorite Movies is out now. You can pre-order that wherever you get books. And Emily has a new book out. Emily, you want to tell
0: people a little bit about it and where they can buy it? Very sweet of you. Thank you so much. If you are a fan of noir movies and classic detectives, I have a classic detective novel series where the Rosalind Russell-esque character gets to be the P.I. So it's called Girl Friday Mysteries. The first one is called Viviana Valentine Gets Her Man. The second one is Viviana Valentine Goes Up the River, and that one is brand new. That's all I'm going to promo. But thank you for the opportunity. I appreciate it. If you
1: haven't visited our Redbubble shop, we have some fantastic artwork up there designed by our own Samantha Ellis, as well as some great commission pieces from the fantastic Terrence Hiltz, who you probably know on Twitter, at Cooler Our newest ones that he has designed for us include a Myrna Loy-centric May the 4th Be With You piece called Welcome to the Loy Side. He also did a fantastic tribute to the Weird as Hell trailer that promotes The Moon is Blue involving a bear. You can see all that on our Twitter page, but you can get that on mugs and all sorts of other things over at redbubble.com slash people slash ticklish biz. So let's talk about Doris Day in May and Love Me or Leave Me. This was Doris Day's big, serious, dramatic turn directed by Charles Vidor. It's a fictionalized account of jazz singer Ruth Edding, played by Day, and her marriage to gangster Marty, quote-unquote, the Gimp Snyder, played by James Cagney, who made her a star can definitely see why people consider this day's best work as somebody who had been mired in bubblegum films and was this representative of untouchable femininity to play a drinking torchy type of saloon singer turned zigfeld Follies girl i see the appeal samantha emily what was your background with this prior to us talking about it
2: I actually have never seen this until yesterday. Really crazy because I'm a huge Doris Day fan. And as we were talking about a little bit before recording, I like James Cagney too. At least the more that I'm watching of his films. I really like Yankee Doodle Dandy. White Heat is one of my all-time favorite noirs. I appreciate him. And then I saw Footlight Parade at the TCM Festival and I thought that he was so great in that. This, I feel like I walked into it with so little information. All I knew was that it's Doris Day and James Cagney and that a lot of people think that it's Doris Day's best movie and it's a little more dramatic than other things that she does. I had no idea how much more dramatic or exactly what would be going on, but I was really thrown for a loop.
0: I like stay quite a bit because probably the first Hitchcock movie I ever saw was The Man Who Knew Too Much. So I know her from the big belting case of Ross, Ross scene. She is the clincher of that movie. She's amazing. I was telling Kristen before we started recording, I don't think I've ever seen a James Cagney movie before, which is a really interesting thing to say as someone who writes noir mysteries and oops, I'm embarrassed. I like Stay a lot. I also just genuinely respect her for her body of work as the untouchable blonde next door. She has comedic chops and things like that. So I was really surprised to see her in this particular role. I just saw Gypsy for the first time this summer, and I was expecting it to be a little bit more that, and it wasn't. It's just a really, really fascinating little pinpoint in the career of this woman who's super, super famous, but not for stuff like this.
1: No, it's... Remarkable to look at her filmography leading up to this because two years prior, she had the huge hit Calamity Jane. She'd also done pretty much exclusively romantic films. And even after this, she would do The Man Who Knew Too Much the year after and Julie, which is also a very serious film, even though it is ridiculously silly. But then she would go back to making more romantic films, stuff like The Pajama Game and Pillow Talk would be a couple years down the line, the film she did with Rock Hudson. She would get stuff like Midnight Lays, but this really did usher in a very brief string of serious dramatic films for her, and she's very, very good. What I was struck by in this rewatch is how there seems to be two schools of thought with this movie. What the movie is supposed to accomplish for Doris Day and what the movie is supposed to accomplish for the movie. And it's the problem that you get with a lot of singers that are personalities, right? You see this with something like Funny Girl with Barbra Streisand. What is a big criticism about Funny Girl? That movie is set in the rolling 20s or the vaudeville circuit, and Barbra Streisand looks like it's 1965. She makes no effort to be a part of the time period. It is the Barbra Streisand show, and this story works well around her. In this case, I don't necessarily know if it works because Doris Day does not look like Ruth Edding. If you look at Ruth Edding, she has very strong features, kind of a homely girl. Doris Day is full Doris Day glamour. And this is supposed to be set in the 1920s, but she looks like 1950s Doris Day. There is very little attempt to ingratiate her with the time period. And that does create this disconnect because... You never forget that this is Doris Day, not Doris Day playing a character, Doris Day in a Doris Day movie, which makes the movie's darkness
0: feel fake or phony. It just doesn't jive with everything. The opening scene, she starts off and she's a taxi dancer waiting at a club and she basically gets paid to dance with men. If you know anything about this phenomenon of taxi dancing in the 1920s and 30s, it was seedy. It was slightly borderline sex work, but they really sanitized it to a point where I was surprised that they launched the story with that scene because she's standing there and she looks like Doris Day in a very 1950s style, 1920s flapper dress. There's no dirt to it. It's very shiny. It's very clean. It's very squeaky. And I was really surprised that that's where they started the story. Which, by the way, Ruth Edding was never a taxi dancer as far as I can
1: find out. She actually was studying art and costume design for a brief period of time in her life. She was born in Nebraska. Her mom died when she was five, and she lived with her grandparents for the majority of her life. And she liked art. And she got a job designing costumes at a nightclub she went to art school eventually she was a designer for a costume shop in chicago's loop district and she was so successful she got a partnership in the shop she never took voice lessons it wasn't until she was featured vocalist like in the movie becomes ill and is unable to perform and she's asked to fill in and that's when she discovered that she was a singer and wanted to perform so the cd taxi dancing backstory is one of many Fictionalized elements of this story.
2: When I first started watching the film, just like Emily, I got the feeling it's supposed to be the 20s. You're not supposed to watch a movie and be like, this is supposed to be the 20s. (laughs) You're supposed to think this is the 20s. You definitely get that singing in the rain Broadway melody esque 50s, 20s feel, which I think is great. It looks great in Technicolor and in CinemaScope, but. For the realism of the story, it definitely doesn't work. It always feels like
1: she's wearing a 1920s Halloween costume. That's the ultimate issue with this film, despite how good Day is in the acting elements of it, is that you never buy in that she has had a hard life. Ruth Edding didn't. She had a hard life when she got married and she became a performer. But leading up to this, you're not buying this presentation of Ruth Edding's life, especially with Doris Day that she was this taxi dancer. It doesn't even give us any of the backstory about her life. It's like she was born from the head of Zeus. She has no life that starts before this scene in the opening of this movie, which is a a problem because you really don't understand. They make a lot of excuses for why she stays with Snyder. Even if we had given the backstory about a woman who seemingly grew up not knowing poverty, all of the basic things where you're like, oh, this is why she would stay... We don't give her any real depth into that.
0: It's just, oh, she owes him. But why? <laughs> One of the things that I didn't quite grasp because it's Doris Day start to finish is the exact expanse of time that this takes place over. Of you No, know, Doris Day looks like Doris Day, however old she is when she's filming this from start to finish. So I couldn't really grasp if she was made a star over the course of... Three months or 10 years. It was really difficult for me to grasp how much she, air quotes, owed her husband for doing all this. Aside from a little bit of gray hair dye and the piano player's hair towards the end of the movie to show that time has passed, I didn't really quite grasp how in it she was with the mob. She met Snyder in 1922.
1: They stayed married until she divorced him in 37. So that's over a decade. And based on what I've read is that he met her while she was performing, dumped his first wife because he was married and married her in 1922, the year they met. The movie gives no real sense of time. It just says at a certain point after she's left the Ziegfeld Follies, they get married as a means of her thanking him for all he's done. Historically, none of that is true. They got married even before she became a Ziegfeld Follies girl. We all know going into these biopics, we do a whole secondary bonus show about biopics. A lot of the fiction is why people like these stories. And that is its own problem because people do not research like us all the time. And they take the movie as gospel that was even truer in the classic film era where we didn't have the ability to research you saw the movie unless you were going to the library and were reading a book you didn't really have access to the wide breadth of history as a film this is certainly a fun very formulaic all of the musical biopics that they did in the 40s through the 50s have a very clear formula this is no exception which is. Two characters meet, there's a powder keg of conflict, but the music's so good, damn it. Can't we just appreciate the music? You see it in something like My Gal Sal, which I saw for the first time this year, which I did not really care for. You see it even more egregiously in something like Cary Grant's Night and Day, which is the Cole Porter story about how Cole Porter was completely heterosexual, which... Is hilarious. And this, it's not really in either extreme. It's not ridiculously offensive to changing a character's sexuality, nor is it so banal you can't enjoy it like My Gal Sal. Apologies to the My Gal Sal fans. The fictionalization of it does turn this into a borderline Douglas Turk melodrama.
2: Oh, for sure. This one, again, I had no idea what to expect going into it. I did not expect it to be quite so toxic of a relationship. You definitely see, as you mentioned, the dynamic of her owing him and whether she owes him or not and for what. I don't know if you guys read about the scenes that were cut out of the movie for the censors. Those are Far worse. By the end of this, I was like, oh my gosh, this guy is the worst. Although I will say I probably would have entered the same situation from the beginning. It looked good at first. It was very realistic in the ways that it developed the layers of abuse. Definitely didn't expect it from either of these actors. I want
1: you to talk about the cut scenes in a second because the fact that this movie starts with him seeing her at the club, she's just kicked a guy because he's tried to assault her. She gets fired. And he says, hey, I think you have talent. I'm interested in you. But he says at a certain point, once they start dating, that at first it was just the hookup sitch. He was not really into the long term, but now he realizes she has talent. It goes back to the nature of persona. There are so many personas in this movie that has to compete with the nature of the story, right? Doris Day's persona is bubbly, positivity. And that is at odds with the real Ruth Edding story. So Ruth Edding in this movie is never dour enough to be depressed. She's just trying to find some optimism. I owe him. Oh, but we're doing really good. It isn't until the other guy, Johnny, shows up, played by Cameron Mitchell, that you see this romantic triangle conflict and it never really feels like she wants to escape snyder because of the abuse it's more just oh well i love johnny which by the way his name was not johnny we americanized it a lot of things had to be changed to make this movie as all american as possible but then you have James cagney who had played so many gangster characters as a second hat to him but had also changed that persona in 1942 with yankee doodle dandy And then comes back to it here to play this really just abusive, horrific character. But was I the only one who thought that the movie tries very, very hard to sympathize him? He keeps telling her all the time, I love you. And everybody's like, He's got no one. No one likes him. Everybody hates him. You're the only one he's nice to. I really felt it was a very clunky way of saying, Yeah, he sucks. But just look at how pathetic he is. (laughs) lend him a hand because no one
0: else likes him. He has a real hangdog expression throughout the entire thing to the point where like, before he starts doing really, truly horrific acts of violence, I almost started feeling bad for him. And I felt like I was a traitor to myself and my own values. I was just like, oh, he just threw a vase. Who cares? No, this is threatening behavior from a man who kills people for a living. Why am I feeling this sympathetic towards this person. I know the facts behind this, but man, James Cagney really plays up the sad, dour little man. He does it so well. And I hate it a little bit. It's probably the strongest portrayal in the actual movie. It's like the strongest bit of acting and sympathy to the character in the entire film.
2: James Cagney, throughout the whole film, I totally agree. The emotion that you see in his face. For both of these actors, this is just such a great full circle moment for both of them. I can definitely understand why this was made, because for James Cagney, you've got these musical parts, you've got these dramatic parts, you've got these gangster parts. I mean, he doesn't have any numbers himself, but this rolls all of that together into one. Doris Day, we've talked about, as Alicia Malone puts it, her huffs and puffs. That she has in her movies compared to, obviously, her bright, sunshiny optimism. And, of course, all of her amazing numbers. So I feel like this, again, also puts it all together into one film. So I think that's why a lot of people think that this is the best for them both. I don't know if I agree. There are just some movies that highlight them individually that I like a little better. But for both of them, they work opposite each other really well. There seems to be a pretty significant age gap, but it's not even something that we think about compared to some of the other ones that we talk about a lot, like Sabrina and Love in the Afternoon. That is another thing for the 50s. They did fairly well.
1: I don't know how much age difference was between the real Ruth Edding and Snyder. This movie, I was happy, did not go for the obvious having Doris Day act like she's this babe in the woods although they said the real Ruth Edding when she met Snyder was very naive, which makes me believe that she was far younger than Day is playing her in the film. To Emily's point, there is this real attempt at sympathy for him. This was a guy who allegedly never traveled anywhere without a gun and would proceed to poke people with it to scare the hell out of them and then laugh at their fear. So the movie really does soften him as well, to a significant degree. That's, even before we we'll get into the historical twist at the end involving the shooting of a man, Smith, you brought up the cut sequences. I did not know about these. Can you talk a little bit about what was cut
2: and why? According to Doris Day and her autobiography, there is one particular scene in between, right before the two characters are married. It makes a lot of sense now looking back because when I was watching the film, It made no sense to me how they got married. She literally was just saying she wants nothing to do with you and she's trying to leave. But then as they cut out of the film, he goes on to sexually assault her. And so that's how she stays and why they end up getting married. But they totally cut that out because of the censors. That ends up taking a lot of the context out of the film. I did not understand at all why their characters got married. It didn't make any sense to me. Obviously, it doesn't make any sense. They threw the scene in, but I would have at least explained it a little better. It would have been a horrible situation, and it would have made me feel a lot differently for him from the beginning, as opposed to it being more of a slow burn of him doing more abusive things after they were married.
1: The abuse is very, I hate to use the word softened, but it does feel softened. And Doris Day did two very significant abuse movies, this and the aforementioned Julie, which is a movie that starts out very, very seriously about domestic violence with Louis Jordan, of all people, and then turns into the third act of Airplane.
2: I was going to mention (laughs) that movie. I love that movie. It's like, why does she keep taking these roles of women who just get beat around? Well, according to the most
1: recent biography that came out about Doris Day, author david kaufman who did doris day the untold story of the girl next door back in 2008 she identified with a lot of these abused women because according to the biography her husband was abusive towards her physically especially in something like julie where she was filming these abusive scenes they said she would have panic attacks because it gave her ptsd about the abuse that she experienced i don't want to put words in anybody's mouth, but it seems like she might have identified with some of these characters. But especially in this film, the abuse is very deliberately controlled because you have Cagney, you have Day, you have this story. This is supposed to be this big, splashy musical biopic. You can't have it be too dour. To Emily's point, he's throwing vases. He's punching a guy, specifically a guy. It's always a guy. There's never direct physical violence towards her, even though it's pretty ridiculous to think that there would not be physical violence.
0: There was a slap. That's what precipitated there. her leaving him and running to the manager's office and just being like, we need to get a divorce. It was like, oh, actual physical contact was one That's was the last the breaking draw. point in the film. But obviously, we know in actual abusive relationships, it's not just one slap. The movie takes a real sensorial perspective on what is the breaking point for an abused woman. Verbal, I guess fine by the censors throwing stuff, I guess fine. But that one slap is, oh, no, nope, now she has to leave him. Thanks, code. The most disturbing part for me, and it's just a line of
1: dialogue where she's standing by the window. It's after they've gotten married and he's trying to tell her, "Though, let's go shopping. Let's go do all of these things he's being nice. And she says to him, I don't know why you're doing that. You don't have to sell me. I'm already sold. That is the most heartbreaking moment in the entire movie and shows the ultimate control and the abusive power that he has. Yes, he sends guys in with her. She can't go anywhere alone. That's all stuff you expect to see. But that one moment of her just saying, it is over. I have no free will left. I don't want to say that does more than Seeing physical abuse, but it emphasizes this character is just completely destroyed.
2: Very much is that you win moment, and you just see that total look of defeat that she has. You also see she starts to like drink a little bit (laughs) throughout those scenes. So you just see how it weighs on her. And I feel awful for her too, not only because you think about the real life connections that she had, like to Martin Melcher and how he treated her compared to how this character treats her. Also, I feel for the fact that this is 1950s. and are not always going to be great portrayals. Touching on what you were saying, Kristen, she has to tell Martin's character so many times that she's not really seeing or in love with the piano player for it to really hit home. It's so hard because she wants to be free and she wants to love somebody else but she's not even mentally there yet or mentally ready for that yet and men around her already jumping to that conclusion which i think is unfortunate too to see
1: doris day would not get nominated for an oscar for this movie it would not be until 1960 for pillow talk which is just crazy to me
2: that is so crazy i think she really deserved a nod for calamity jane as well that's my favorite of hers as far as her really stretching the limits of her acting and her singing and dancing, but this one, she deserved a nod for it. The fact that James Cagney got his third nomination for this and she didn't get nominated, even though he gave her top billing, is so crazy. It, It
1: goes back to a lot of the complaints we have about the Oscars tending to nominate the supporting cast, or at least anybody else but the women or the people of color. Because this was nominated for actor for Cagney, screenplay... It won Motion Picture Story, which is like an adapted screenplay thing when they separated Best Screenplay and Best Idea. It was nominated for Best Score, Best Song, and Best Sound Recording. Day was not nominated. I'm just shocked that she only has one Oscar nomination in her entire career. Don't get it. I don't get it at all. Celebrating the release of Eddie Muller's new book, Noir Bar, with a giveaway win one of two copies by following us on Twitter and Instagram and responding to our contest tweet with the film noir that you love. No purchase necessary, open to U.S. residents only. Contest closes June 1st. We do see Ruth in this film drinking heavily, which I love that they just keep reiterating how it's affecting her looks. Cagney says at one point, oh, it's making you look like an old bag. And one of the other characters is like, you look exhausted. You should really stop drinking. Let's just worry about how aesthetically pleasing
0: it is. The drink. It couldn't possibly be what's precipitating this and leading (laughs) up to her desire to numb her feelings. No, no, no. That couldn't
1: be it at all. By the 1930s, the real Ruth Edding was having trouble getting booked into places because Snyder would argue and fight. She got passed over for a lot of things. So in 1936, she thought she would go to England, but he caused problems there He even got involved in a street fight because, of course, she finally divorced him at the end of 1937. He didn't contest it. He did receive a healthy settlement from her. She gave him half of her earnings, which was about 50 grand at the time, some securities and half interest in a home that they owned in Beverly Hills. She bought a lot of real estate in California, uh, weirdly enough. She did not like invest in stocks. She invested in land. Very smart. She took care of him for the most part. I want to bring up the love triangle because this is where Ruth Edding's story takes a crazy left turn and the movie does not deal with it at all. She falls in love with Johnny because he's all-American, right? Played by Cameron Mitchell. Cameron Mitchell is one of many unremarkable men of the 1950s. I never remember his face. He's just some basic dude with brown hair. Did he have any characterization that made you say, Gonna remember that
2: guy later. He's so iconic to me just because of How to Marry a Millionaire. I love him <laughs> I with Lauren McCall. In that. See, there you go. I love him with Lauren McCall in that and all of their scenes. And that's just such an iconic ending where he pulls out like the fat wad of cash and everybody faints at the soda fountain. So I never forget him for that reason. But he, yeah, he's totally bland in this. Totally emo close. He's
1: very, very bland. I didn't read anything about alternative casting. I know that Cagney was not the first choice. They originally wanted Spencer Tracy. Like, I get why you get Cagney. Cagney's the ultimate gangster. Spencer Tracy is not gangster-y. He's just a jerk. I would yeah, have never I- been able
2: to see him the same.
0: No, he, that is absolutely a man who you hire in order to just be Rough around the edges, you don't really want to marry, but maybe he has a redeeming quality, like a very thick bank account, but not head of a life of crime. He just has no crime family in him at all. I was like, okay, if you want to get Spencer Tracy with
1: some half, maybe Lauren's Tierney. I could see that. I don't get the Spencer Tracy thing, but Cameron Mitchell, I'm assuming, was always involved in this. But Johnny is just not particularly dynamic and maybe that is the allure that he's just a normal guy he's not really that special he spends a lot of time telling ruth that she should leave snyder she's talented that he loves her when i've seen doris day have heat with an actor i always show for her and james garner and the thrill of it all which is probably doris day at her sexiest and that is a relationship where you believe that these two definitely want more than just to hang out with each other. Here, I don't feel any palpable chemistry between the two of them. This is a guy that's offering you a way out. I'm not seeing love of your life. Want more ticklish business? Join us over on Patreon alongside patrons Melanie Mick F., Jacob Haller, David Floyd, Danny, Christine Meyer, Andrew Hopp, Amy Hart, and Allie Moore. Patrons listen to episodes 48 hours early, receive regular guests, and can even guest on an episode of their choice. Patreon also helps us create content like our TCM Classic Film Festival audio episodes and series like Six Weeks with a Thin Man, Being Elvis, Based on a True Podcast, and Doubled Features. It's all on patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. And don't forget to get your favorite ticklishbiz moments immortalized on merch at a Redbubble shop at redbubble.com slash people slash ticklishbiz. Redbubble is the home for our Jean and Judy Makoko mugs, as well as our May the 4th Welcome to the Wayside Art Crafted by artist Terrence Hills. We thank you for your support. Now back to the show.
0: The way out is it? If he's going, you have talent, I can see it. I can get you out of here, but you're playing at the same lousy club. He can't get you out. He can't even get himself out. This is a very incredibly strong promise from a guy who is also playing at the same lousy nightclub, and he's not even the main piano player. He's the guy who plays for the dancers, not the headlining act. He can't do anything for her. And I think she realizes that in the beginning. She's like, this is a line. And I said no, because I wanted to say no. And then she's like, I went with the gangsters because at least he's got pull in the city. But at the end, you're like, okay, I, I guess there's something there
2: now, but still not enough. In my opinion, there's still not enough. I totally agree. I felt that way very deeply. I also felt like he wanted her just for the sake of wanting her, He didn't really give any reasons for why he liked her. He didn't even know that she could sing. It was really just like, she's cool. I like her. Just from the very first look, and nothing's ever explained about that. You don't get chemistry because it's never established. It's just an immediate, I want her number, but nothing really else to follow that up.
1: Well, Emily brings up a good point, which I forgot to bring up when talking about Day, which is that the film doesn't want to make it seem like she's using Snyder for connections to get a leg up. Is she a manipulative character? That's what I kept going back with. The movie doesn't really want to say Doris Day is playing a manipulative character, but the character is somewhat manipulative,
0: right? Snyder calls her out on it a handful of times. He says, where is it going to end, kid? When she sabotages the headliner in order to be the headlining act at the seedy little club. He's like, you've got some bite to you, little one. He's like, I see what you're doing here. But I feel like the movie definitely says, oh no, she doesn't have any machinations, but the characters understand that there's machinations. It's a very weird thing where the characters in the movie understand how cutthroat they are, but the movie tries to downplay it in a way that I was ultimately confused by.
1: It's very, very weird. And it makes you wonder if maybe they had cast somebody different. Originally, Ava Gardner was offered this role. It does make me wonder if Ava had been cast, if we would have gotten a darker, slightly more historically accurate characterization of Ruth Edding. Ava
2: would have been great. Another person that I heard was up for the part was Jane Russell, The thing that would worry me with Jane would be her singing. I love her singing. I think she's a great singer, but it's definitely not even nearly the same style. And I know that Ruth, I believe, wanted Jane Powell, and Jane Powell was originally considered. That would have been really weird, especially with her style of singing. But she looks the part.
1: Jane Powell certainly looks more like Ruth Edding than Doris Day does. But you bring up a good point, which is about the singing style. The real Ruth Edding lowered her voice to be that smoky torch song singer. And Doris Day has a deep voice, but it never feels torch song to me at all. Never. I always feel like it's just Doris Day singing My Secret Love.
2: Ava could have pulled it off really beautifully with her voice. If you go and listen to some of her recordings that are her actual voice, she was a fantastic singer. And she definitely had that smoky nightclub quality. But I would have loved to see Jane Powell stretch her acting talent, Jane Russell too, either one of them. They don't feel quite enough, but with the right director and the right handling, they could have knocked it out of the park.
1: So to go back to the love triangle here, the movie's third act is she divorces Snyder. She wants to finally get together with Johnny. Snyder does the typical thing of, you hang out with her, I'll kill you. Well, he does. They're meeting up one day. Johnny goes into the driveway and Snyder guns him down. He lives. Everybody lives happily ever after. I do love, though, that it involves Ruth having to go see Snyder one last time and be like, oh, don't worry, Johnny lived. I know that concerned you. Reminding us that he didn't do it because he's a bad guy. He did it because he had nothing left and he felt like he was losing control. She goes and sings at his failing nightclub to give him a leg up. Let's remember that. Let's put a pin in this. So, the real story according to history, Edding did fall in love with her pianist, whose name was Merle Alderman, not Johnny, because we can't have too ethnic a name, who was separated from his wife because, again, married. In 38, Ruth Edding got telephone calls from Snyder, essentially threatening her through the phone. The couple was divorced, but he didn't want her to start dating other men. He told her that he was going to come to California and kill her. Snyder told his daughter from his previous marriage, Edith, that he was going to kill her. He called one evening. Edding took the call with her cousin listening on the phone. She called the police and arranged for private protection. But she thought Snyder wasn't going to come do anything. So she sent the bodyguards home and told them they're not needed. So in October of 1938, Snyder detained Merle Alderman at a radio station and forced him at gunpoint to go to Ruth Edding's house. In the house was Edding and Edith Snyder. Edith worked for Edding and remained living with her after they divorced. So he held them all at gunpoint. And when told that his daughter was in another part of the house, he made Ruth Edding call her into the room. He said that he was going to kill all three of them alderman tried to speak, Snyder shot him. Snyder told Ruth Edding, well, I did what I had to do. You can call the cops now. He claimed that Merle Alderman pulled a gun on him and shot him first and that his ex-wife wasn't going to file any charges because she still loved him. He also claimed he was drunk when he made all of those threatening phone calls and that he never intended to kill anybody. Ruth Edding had another story that the only gun in the house belonged to her and that after Alderman had been shot, she went and got it and had a fight with Snyder and Edith, Snyder's daughter, picked up the gun and shot at her dad, but ended up hitting the floor. And she told the cops, quote, I don't yet know whether I am sorry I missed my dad or whether I am glad. So he was accused of trying to kill all three of them, kidnapping and violating some California state gun laws. Three days after that, Alderman's second wife sued ruth edding for alienation of affection edding and alderman claimed that they had this tijuana marriage in 1938 alderman's second wife said that was invalid because her divorce wasn't final yet there was no mexican marriage as far as the cops could find out edding did this big public invitation to alma alderman to visit her husband in the hospital to see if maybe there could be a reconciliation during this big trial They questioned everybody's marriage, including Alderman's marriage to his wife, Alma, because his first wife at the time did not make sense. And they didn't believe that the second marriage was legal. Snyder was a witness for Alma Alderman. The first wife of Alderman showed up claiming that Alma Alderman had actually taken her husband from her. It was a huge, huge deal. The lawsuit ended in 39, with the court finding that she didn't need a dime from Ruth Edding. So nobody won. And all of this brought some terrible publicity to Ruth Edding. Snyder kept giving her gifts, which she did take after the telephone threats. She did go back and forth on whether Snyder had really intended to kill her. Snyder's attorney is the one who put out this idea that Ruth Edding was this very calculating person who had married Snyder for the benefit of her career and that she wanted to leave him for a new young man. She would eventually marry Alderman. He was a decade younger than her in 1938 in Vegas during the trial that Snyder was on for murder. Snyder was convicted, but he was released on appeal after a year in jail. He did get a new trial. Alderman decided to drop further charges against Snyder, and they all just decided to move on. Ruth Edding and Alderman stayed married for the rest of their lives, and I guess happy ending? That's an interesting story, right, gang? That would be great in a movie, wouldn't
2: it? I and I love it. It's way better than what actually happened in the movie. <laughs> I would have loved to see the daughter shooting at her dad.
1: Right? The frustration with these sanitized musical biopics is that the truth is actually better than fiction in many ways. In this case... It showed that these characters are human in a way that the movie does not want to deal with. Like Alderman was married three times. Snyder's daughter hated him. Ruth Edding might have been a calculating woman who continued to take gifts from her abusive husband and then married a younger guy. All of these things can be true. That would have been very interesting. But 1955, you're trying to sell this as Doris Day's new turn towards seriousness. I get why you didn't do it, but the story is just so fascinating.
0: It's so fascinating to see this positioned as door stays turned to seriousness when the movie is incredibly fluffy by all modern standards. My mouth was hanging open when she leaves her boyfriend's bedside after he's like, I've been shot three times. And she's like, I know, sweetheart. I'm so happy you're still alive. I have to go comfort the man who shot you how is this gritty? By what ruler is this a gritty, hard-boiled turn for Doris Day? Because she's literally playing a role where she's putting, again, her feelings on the back seat and her desires on the backseat in order to comfort the feelings of the men around her. And I was like, no, it's still kind of a happy doormat role, frankly. It's just blonde little housewife comforting all the men around her. It was really frustrating.
2: And in the end, she still ends up doing things for him and for him to succeed. I totally understand the point that they're trying to make, but I think at that time, they should have just parted ways. Brings up the question of, is this
1: really a Doris Day movie? Because the movie begins and ends, who is the first person we see on screen? We see Snyder, we see James Cagney. And the end of the movie is not even that studio close-up, right, of Day singing her heart out that you usually see at the end of all of her movies. It's this wide shot of the club and Snyder with his back to her being like, yeah, yeah, Uh, that kid, she's great. It really does feel like this is Cagney's film, which would make sense considering that the Academy clearly recognized that because they nominated him for the Oscar. It definitely gave Day A second wind in her career, but she did go back to making predominantly fluffy romantic films after this. There would be the occasional return to drama, but I still don't believe anybody that watches this would say that it made Day a dramatic actress.
2: Especially because she was doing other dramatic things before that. You think of a movie like Storm Warning from 1951. One. Or you think of like Tunnel of Love where she's trying to have a child, which it has some serious moments mixed in with some fluffiness. And of course, Julie after the fact. Doris, to me, she's a little bit tough to define emotionally within roles. It's hard for me to place her as a dramatic or a comedian Or a musical actress, because she could really do it all. She was so sunshiny and so sweet that even seeing her totally angry and totally dramatic on screen, I still put her in with the musicals and the comedies. She could pull it all off beautifully, but I think it's just like her face. It's almost like seeing an angry Corey or something like that. (laughs) Doris Day,
1: angry corgi. I love it. I love that you brought up *Storm Warning*, which is a movie that I think everybody should watch. It's not necessarily a Doris Day movie; it's more of a Ginger Rogers movie, but it is so good. It answers the immortal question of what would you do if you found out your husband was a Klansman. Which if you have not seen it, you should. It also continues to remind me that, you know what? Steve Cochran was one of the best movie villains. It does not nearly get enough flowers for being both a himbo and a fuckboy. And also just all around fun to watch in movies. It's my 32nd tribute to Storm Warning.
2: I also have to throw in, now that I'm remembering too, Midnight Lace. That's a weird one that starts out so
1: strong. And then just peters out by the end of it. It's been a while since I've seen it. Tell me if I'm wrong. It's Rex Harrison.
2: Mm -hmm. in that one.
1: Which I hate Rex Harrison. But, you know, whatever. It's Merloy. It's John Gavin, isn't it? John Gavin. I was going to say. Doris Day knew her some himbos, huh? Everybody's favorite big dumb baby, John
2: Gavin. Of course, Emily brought up The Man Who Knew Too Much. I think that has some really amazing, serious points for Day. So as far as her dramatic work, it's something she was always doing. People say, like, oh, she occasionally stepped into drama. But like, she always was doing drama. Honestly,
1: The Man Who Knew Too Much, I know a lot of people that don't like that version. The original <laughs> version is fun. The 1930s version, I recommend it, especially for having a really great Hitchcock female character. But she actually does better dramatic work in that than in this hot take. I would agree (laughs)
2: agree with that. I would agree with that too. Although I do prefer the 30s version of The Man Who Knew Too Much, but I'm incredibly biased just because I love the 30s as a whole.
1: The 30s version is great, if only because you have... It's not a spoiler. The movie's old enough. You should have seen it by now. It culminates with the leading lady having to be a sharpshooter. It's so worth it. Emily, if you've not
0: seen it, you should definitely check it out. I've only ever seen the jimmy stewart one, and now i'm and, and i'm like oh oh that's getting queued up this afternoon pretty it's much as soon it. as we hang up
1: we all agree there are better doris day movies i don't want to take away anything from love me or leave me it is a very fun picture doris day definitely makes this hunt into being a serious leading lady but i don't know i think that the problems of the 1950s musical biopic end up undermining a lot of the good for either of the characters this is more of a Cagney film to me this is less of a day movie she's done better work in other films but you can't not be just captivated watching her sing 10 cents a dance I definitely endorse it go watch Julie just turn it off before she gets on the airplane because the third act again is very very dumb But there are other examples of Doris Day's seriousness that could go in conjunction with this and build off of it. Emily, Samantha, final thoughts?
2: I hadn't seen this before, and I know some people really, really love this film. A lot of the Doris Day fans say that this is their favorite one. I definitely don't want to downplay the hype. I was really happy to discover it. It's such a hard watch for me, though, because I think about the scenes that were cut and I think about the scenes that weren't cut, even how crazy the emotional and verbal abuse is. This is one that I don't know if I'll revisit, but I am very glad to visit it the once. And I would recommend people see it one time if they're a fan of Doris or James Cagney because they won't be disappointed with that.
0: It was just a really fascinating foray into two actors that I don't know terribly well or Doris Day outside of the caricature of Doris Day and the James Cagney outside the caricature of James Cagney. This have to be my first show with you guys was a really fascinating sort of like, how do we parse through everything that was created in the 1950s and how that slots into our understanding of old Hollywood? It was just a really interesting first foray into it of just, it's okay to watch things that are classic Hollywood and be just like, huh, okay. And carry on. You don't have to have like super strong feelings about it one way or the other.
2: This is a perfect follow-up to our discussion of the crumbling of the code as well, because this is just such a great example of some things that they were showing in movies at the time that I haven't really seen in too many other movies of the 50s, honestly, and I've seen quite a few. If you're following the show and you watch The Moon is Blue and you follow it up with this, I don't think you'll be disappointed with the progression of how you see the code being phased out, which I think is so interesting.
1: Listeners, send us your thoughts on Doris Day. You can email them to us at ticklishbiz at gmail.com. You can hit us up on Twitter at ticklish underscore biz or Instagram at ticklishbiz. That's going to close out Ticklish Business for today. Please remember, this was mentioned in the mid-roll that you probably already heard, but we are giving away two copies of Eddie Muller's book, Noir Bar, as a Doris Day fan himself. We definitely needed to celebrate Eddie Muller and his new book, so we are giving away two copies of that. All you have to do is be sure to follow us on Twitter and tell us what your favorite film noir is. If you follow us on Instagram, you can also enter there as always you can listen to the show on apple Podcasts, spotify stitcher wherever you get your podcast finally got our first re- new review of 2023 and it comes to us from at big orange traffic cone they say such a great podcast i find it really easy to get tired of podcasts after a while but i've been consistently listening for over a year and every episode is always interesting and great i love the perspective they give and the diversity of material they discuss I'm a very casual classic film fan, i.e. I watched TCM, but never studied or delved deeper into classic films. And this show is great for learning more. And it makes me so happy that you like it. Yay! Trying to keep classic film accessible for everybody. You can leave us a review over on Apple Pod- Podcasts, please. Five stars should do. You can, again, follow us on Twitter at ticklish underscore biz, as well as on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at ticklish biz. You can follow me over at therap.com or on Twitter and Instagram at Kristen
2: lopez eighty eight Smith Ellis, where are you online? Well, you can mostly find me at Classic Film Geek on Twitter. You can find my blog at musings of a and you can find my cooking with the stars posts over at classicmoviehub.com. And
0: Emily Edwards, what about you? You can find me across all platforms at Ms. Emily Edwards, Ms. Emily Edwards. I will be talking about books and movies and writing and all of that jazz as the weeks go on, probably more on Instagram than Twitter for the foreseeable future. So I'd love to see you there where I share lots of photos of mostly my pets doing very dumb things.
1: Our Patreon keeps the lights on at Ticklish Biz HQ and gives us chances to do new content like our two-hour TCM Classic Film Festival Audio Extravaganza. So consider helping us at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. My and Emily's books are out wherever you buy books, so please consider giving them a purchase. We will return with a new episode on June 7th. Till then.